Uh, and now I'm going to read the scripture here, and we'll get started and pray and get this going. <clears throat> and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for everything that you have given us, and we pray for your presence this morning um, in each and every one of us, and we just thank you for Sunday and this place um, and all that you've done for us. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Shane, for doing that. We are in our last part of um, our series called uh, Gospel Christianity, and this morning we are looking, about the, looking at the mission of the church. What is our purpose? Um, why do we even exist? And it's important for us to think about that for a moment. Why do we, right now in 2017, exist? Why, do, why does the Malibu Gathering Church exist? And, and the answer to that question um, is significant, uh, that we know and, and, and we're thinking about. And what we've said is that we exist to create a community that glorifies God. That we exist to create a community that glorifies God. So several weeks ago, we began by talking about the character, the nature of God, and said that his attributes are explained by uh, his glory and, and the weight and meaning of that. And so we exist to create relationships that encourage one another to grow in our walk with Jesus. But we also exist as a church to build relationships with people who do not know Christ, to people in our neighborhoods that, that don't know Christ, that we exist to build relationships with those people as well. The challenge, though, of this community that we're trying to, to create, trying to build, is that we all have, and this was week two, we all have something within us, a power within us called sin, not just an act, it's something within all of us that we wrestle with. And uh, I read a, a quote from John Maxwell this week that kind of clarifies uh, the struggle that we all deal with. And um, let's look at this. We might be struggling with this right now. Self-centeredness is the root of virtually every problem, both, both personally and globally. And whether we want to admit it or not, it's a problem all of us have. And so the challenge is, is that if that's within us, how do we create a healthy community? If that is uh, something that exists within marriages and friendships and parents and children 
and neighbors. And it even, according to the quote, even creates tensions on an international level. We, we better think through that, and that's why on week three we talked about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, and He is the one that restores broken relationships. He is the one that can change people's hearts from the inside out and say that there is a better way to live. There is a more beautiful way to live. And so he's the Redeemer. <clears throat> Last week, then we talked about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us power to live out the Christian life. That when there are challenges in life, that there appear to be no answers, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us direction and an answer and a purpose. And so this morning, we are going to look at the idea that we want to be a community, a church community, that not only loves each other, but we love people in our neighborhoods. So number one is this. There's an outline here on your bulletin. Number one, the idea is this. Why do we exist? We exist to create a gospel-precise community. And the word precise is, is important because there's not a lot of things that happen in, in life today that require preciseness. And when you become familiar with things, you start saying things like, that's good enough, close enough. I think it was my last year of um, leading almost 48th grade students to, uh, to D.C. and New York. I think it was my last year where the, the middle school head, uh, my boss, would say, Brian, do we have all the kids? And I would say, pretty darn close. Well, pretty darn close is not really that adequate when you're trying to keep track of human beings that I'm responsible for. We need to be precise. If we bring 38, we want to bring back 38. We want to, so 35 doesn't cut it. So pretty close in gospel understanding isn't helpful. So gospel clarity, gospel precision. The idea that, and, and we've talked about this um, we often, the idea is that the gospel is that you are accepted and loved, not because of the things you have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. That you are accepted and loved, not because of your past, but because of the past of Jesus Christ. That you are fully loved and fully accepted by God because of what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel is not advice for you you need to shape up a little bit. The gospel is not, we don't come and get advice from me. The gospel is, this is what's been done for you. One helpful way to understand the gospel is this, is that the gospel, the gospel is the work of Christ that is free and finished. The gospel is free and finished. That means that it is pure grace. And the only way you can receive this pure grace is through faith. So the gospel is what has been done for you. It's free and it's finished and it's complete. The problem is this. Here's our, the tension. Is that if we get off a little bit, if we take one little step to the right, if we are not precise, if we're pretty close to gospel understanding, pretty close gospel understanding to the right leans towards legalism. Which means I'm going to add something to the gospel. I'm going to add my passion. I'm going to add my mission-mindedness. I'm going to add my generosity. I'm going to add all of these things to the gospel. And that becomes legalism. And what happens then is once you become this kind of person, you start thinking, I'm pretty good. 
I'm doing pretty well in these things. And then other people that aren't doing as well, you can become critical of those kinds of people. So gospel precision is knowing this, that the gospel is good news, and it's free, and it's finished, and all you can do is receive it in faith. One little step to the left, and you turn towards relativism. And that means this, that you have forgotten the cost of salvation. You have forgotten the truth that Jesus Christ was rejected and died on the cross so that you can have a free and finished relationship with God. Relativism, legalism, they're both misunderstandings of the gospel. And here's what's so important to understand. You can be a Christian for a really long time. You can be around church. You can spend years and years and not understand that. So the foundational thing that we want to build our community on is this. The gospel is not advice for you. It's good news, what has been done for you. And you can only receive that in Christ. That is foundational. Gospel precision. And what that does is that gives your soul rest. It gives your soul an understanding. It gives you hope and peace and joy. Because God knows your past, and yet he still loves you. And your relationship with him is not built or determined on your past. It's built on that of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that you cannot live and we just receive it in faith. That's number one. Number two, then, so we exist as a church community to understand gospel precision, that we build our relationships on that. That is why we exist. The next question, then, is this. What do we want to accomplish? What are we, what are we to be doing as a community of people? That's a really important question. And in this story here, this is from Acts. This is... Um, Luke, the writer of Acts, writes this account of the early church. And this is just a foundational and and, um, just a critical thing for us to understand of what are we to be about? What are we to be doing? And number one, the thing we see is this, is that there is supernatural internal heart change. And, And the book of Acts is just overflowing with supernatural things that are happening And so if we look at this, we see this, that in uh, the context of this is that Peter and John are are preaching and speaking the gospel, and the religious authorities aren't having any of it. And so they're being threatened to put it in jail. And And where we read this morning was halfway through this prayer. And so during this time of prayer, the disciples ask for boldness. In the time of threats, they're asking for boldness. Now, here's what's interesting. Someone's threatening them. Now, I can say this. I've, I've, uh, I haven't spent any time in jail. I've visited people in jail, and I just know this, that it's, it's a place that is uh, to be avoided if possible. Um, it's kind of a scary place to be. I remember I was visiting somebody, and he said, Brian, please get me out of here. And I was like, well, I just, I'm just not that important or powerful of a person that I can walk up to the uh, deputy and say, let him out. So the threat is this. They're being threatened with imprisonment. And what do they pray for a moment? It's worth it to think about this for a second. Do they, think, do they say, please, Lord, keep me safe? No, they say, 
please, Lord, give me boldness. So something is happening in their hearts that creates some kind of supernatural change. Now, the challenge when we think through a story like this is this, is that we are free. Nobody, as far as I know, no one has ever been threatened here in the United States that you're going to be put in jail for talking about Jesus. Let's put it this way, though, to try to think about it for a second. Have you ever had a time in your life when finances have been low and you pray, dear Lord, help me be generous with my money? What do we pray when finances get low? Please, Lord, I need, I need help. I need more money. Do we ever pray, please, Lord, finances are tight. Help me be even more generous. Do we pray that? Probably not likely. And so what I'm saying to you is this, is that what we are to be about is internal supernatural heart change. How does that happen? Well, there was a guy that lived a long, long time ago named St. Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name. And he talked about the human heart and how we think about how the human heart changes. And he says three things. Number one is this. Ask yourself, who are you really? Who are you? Not what you think, not the things you do, not your profession, but ask yourself the question, what do you love the most? When you ask yourself the question, who are you really? Begin to think about the things that you really love the most. Number two, the things you love the most are often misplaced in order. That the things, when we think about this, the things that we truly love the most, they easily get out of order. And often those things are really good things in our lives, but they get out of order. Number three then is this, is that you have supernatural internal heart change when you are willing to rearrange the things you love the most in your life and make Jesus Christ number one. That when you begin to think about that, what do I truly love in my life? And you are willing to wrestle with this and think through this a little bit in your heart, things will begin to change a little bit. Imagine this for one second. This might be terrifying, a terrifying scenario for some of you, but imagine for a moment that your iPhone or your phone battery has died and you are waiting for a friend to pick you up and you've got nothing. You've got no books, no computer, no phone, you've just got yourself and you're sitting at the bus stop here on PCH Zuma waiting. The question to ask yourself then is where does your mind go? What do you think about? When you have no devices, no books, nothing to write on, where does your mind, what are the things that you think about? And here's what happens most of the time for most of us. We think about things we want to do or get done. Our business. We, and that, that's what shapes our life is our busyness. That we just think about things. What's next? And we just think about this. Does your heart and your mind go to Jesus Christ? Does it go to God? When you have free time and there's nothing, there's no one asking you to do things, where does your mind go? What kind of things do you think about? And so we learn here in this this um, telling of the early church that there was something happening in people's lives where there was internal heart change where Jesus Christ became the most important 
thing in their life. Number two, the second thing we learned about their community is that they were a one-hearted community. So what are we to be doing? We are to be people who are examining our hearts and then praying and asking God to give us internal supernatural heart change to his things. Number two is this, is that we are a one-hearted community. Verse 32 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, that there was a oneness to them, that there was a supernatural unity. In Acts chapter 2, earlier, Luke writes, and maybe you've heard this word before, the word is fellowship or koinonia, and the word means things in common, that they had things in common. John Stott, uh, in this passage, writes about this unity in this way. What are the things that we have in common that we all take in? What are things we all take in, and what are things we all take out? Well, what do we all take in? We all receive the gospel. That that is what gives us life. The unifying truth, regardless of your age, your situation, your background, what unifies us is the gospel. Well, what do we share out together? What are the things that come out of this unity, this one-hearted, this like-minded people that regardless of your background, the common bond is Jesus Christ. What comes out is this, is excessive grace for one another. Look what is, look what is said here about the, the early church family. Verse 32, I'll read it again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. They had everything in common. And then skipping down, verse 33, it says this, With great power of the apostles, they were giving their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus, and great grace. Great grace. Literally, the word is mega, excessive. Massive amounts of grace was being shown towards one another. Excessive grace. Literally, overflowing in grace for one another. What does that mean? Let's think about this for just a second. Excessive grace means this, <clears throat> that you build into your relationships with each other, you build into your relationships the, the allowing of people to be different than you. Build into your relationships with your family members, your friends, the possibility, the allowance of people being different than you. That they see things from a different perspective and you don't just condemn Allowing a variety of opinions is showing grace to people. It doesn't always have to be just your way. It doesn't always mean like you just have the answer to the, solution, to the problem. You allow other people to have a difference of opinion. That's number one. Number two in understanding excessive grace is this, is that you build a place in your relationship with people that allows for mistakes. Do you allow people to make a mistake? It says this, that the early church showed great grace towards each other. Um, I was doing some reading this week on uh, a book. And, um, oh, missing my notes. Okay. It was called um, Amish Grace. And I didn't plan this intentionally, but I just realized this this week. Tomorrow is the 12-year anniversary 
of the Amish school shooting. I don't know if you remember that, but 12 years ago, yesterday, there was a man, 32-year-old man, married, father, and he went inside of a school in uh, Pennsylvania, a small town in Pennsylvania, and murdered, I believe it was five girls. I think, I think there were 10 shot, and I think five survived, and five, five were murdered. And um, three psychologists wrote a book on it. And I, wanted, I, had a, I had an article that I wanted to quote from you about it. And I don't see it here, but that's, I'll just give you my, uh, the quote I have. Um, three psychologists wrote a book on it, and the book was called Amish Grace. And, and what happened was it created a national discussion on forgiveness and showing grace. Because what happened was immediately after the shooting, Amish people began, um, it, be, it became public that there was forgiveness happening on behalf of the Amish people towards the shooter and towards the family. And, and it sparked a national discussion. And so papers all across the country began writing editorials about forgiveness and showing grace to people. And most of the editorials were very positive. But there were some that were, that were critical of forgiveness because the act was so heinous. And in, in the book, um, they talk about our culture today. So think, of, think about this for a second. Excessive grace towards one another. Allowing someone to make a mistake and offering forgiveness. So let's, can we do the quote? Um, okay, here it is. And this is from the book about these psychologists who wrote about grace. And they said this, most of us have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. That's a powerful sentence. But that's the culture we live in. We mock grace. These guys are from the Northeast. He uses an example from hockey. Hockey fans complain that they have not gotten their money's worth if the players only skate and score without a fight. Bloody video games are everywhere, and the ones that seemed outrageously violent 10 years ago are tamed by today's standards. Blockbuster movie plots revolve around heroes who avenge wrong with merciless killing. And it's not just the entertainment world that uh, relates us into graceless existence. Traffic accidents galvanize hordes of lawyers and encourage victims to get their due. In fact, getting our due might be the most widely shared value in our hyper-consumeristic culture. The person who volunteers time, helps a stranger, who agrees to work for a modest wage out of commitment to the public good, begins to feel like a sucker. And the question for us to think about is that, is that the culture within the church of Jesus Christ? Have we lost excessive grace? Have we lost the ability to allow someone to make a mistake? Will you be a forgiving person? We, we question why, why does the church struggle today, right now, 2017 in America, in Malibu, to be different than Acts? And I'm just proposing to you that the culture that we live in, we nourish revenge and that grace is mocked. They go on to, 
to explain forgiveness. And forgiveness is such an interesting thing. And, and they actually, it's, it's one of those words, like if I were to say, um, define forgiveness, it's actually kind of a hard word to define a little bit. We like all know kind of what it means, but actually putting it in words is difficult. And so in the book, they, um, they use a philosopher, a woman named Joanna North. And let me give you her definition of forgiveness. I think we have this, yes. So when you are unjustly hurt by another, we forgive when we overcome resentment towards the offender, not denying the right to resentment, but instead trying to offer the wrongdoer compassion, benevolence, and love. That's a good definition of forgiveness. It has three key parts. Number one, the offense is taken seriously. I recommend to you uh, the, the book called Amish Grace because one of the things that's so significant is they took the offense, the murder of their daughters, very, very seriously. In fact, one of the, the meaning, most meaningful things to me in this book is their grieving traditions that they would do in their community. They had a list of six or seven or eight traditions that were just meaningful for the grieving process of having lost six young girls, ages six to 13, I believe it was. So you take the offense very seriously. But number two, the victim has the moral right to anger. But number three, the victim gives up the right to be angry. And we think about that. Think about your past. I know that everyone here has been hurt by someone, has been a victim, and some of them some of those things are very, very serious. They're deep, deep wounds, and they're real, and they're horribly wrong and evil and dark. But thinking through the idea that we live in a culture that encourages you to hold on to that, to nourish that, instead of contemplating forgiveness, the Amish, in, in their book, they, there's a quote by an Amish farmer, and he says this, Our way of life is we decide forgiveness. We make a decision. We are going to forgive. And then the rest of our lives, every day, we're going to struggle through that. We're going to struggle through the pain of forgiving. But I'm going to make a decision. I'm, just gonna, I'm, going to, I'm not going to nourish resentment and anger and bitterness. It's going to be a struggle for the rest of my life, but that's the way I'm going to live my life. There's just some meaningful things there. So when we think about this, this community, we read things in here, and we're like, this just sounds great. This is the community that I want to be a part of. What we have to wrestle with is the John Maxwell quote, that within all of us is self-centeredness, and that will always do battle against grace. And grace happens, excessive grace happens when you are willing to pray and seek God for internal heart change. Then grace will begin to happen in your life. Next, we're almost done. Next, and this is on the outline as well, is voluntary generosity. This is just a beautiful thing that's happening here. Again, verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. What a, an amazing attitude. So, P, 
People have possessions. They have houses. They have land. It, it's theirs. The title is in their name. But their attitude was this. It doesn't belong to me. That's, that's who they were. And it says this, verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this community, this gospel-precise community, was a community of people that did not have material needs. Where people, people knew each other well enough, they loved each other enough, that they were willing to be generous. And it wasn't coerced. There was not some gimmick. There wasn't some strategic game plan. There wasn't some marketing campaign and all these things that we think about. What happened was supernatural internal heart change and people began to be generous because they saw other people in need. So there was an internal attitude. And next, there was no strings attached. It wasn't this idea, hey, I'm going to make a donation to the church as long as it goes exactly where I say it goes. It says this, that the people who donated laid at the apostles' feet and the apostles' feet distributed as anyone who had need. This kind of community can only happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last thing, and we're done, is this, is that... Um, that your life and, and the words you say are a witness to people who do not know the gospel in our community. I think from the very beginning of our church, we've said this, that we want to be a, a, a healthy community of people where we love each other and we encourage each other to grow, but also we want to be a place where people who do not know Christ are welcome to come or people in our neighborhood, people in Malibu who have, who have lived their whole lives here in Malibu, but never come to church, have never been invited, have never had someone love them and, and build a friendship with them, and just showed love. We want to be that kind of place. And let me just give you a couple things to, to help you with that. And number one is this, is that you always remember what it's like to not believe the gospel. Can you think back in your life a time when you were not a follower of Christ. And do you remember thinking things like, man, there's just a really, there's a lot of really hard things to think through about the gospel. That you're willing to put yourself in their place, that you're just not like, come on, you should believe. You just need to believe. Where you shame people into believing. The early church had an understanding of people around them. I hope everyone's okay. So the point is this, is that we are thoughtful people in how we live our lives. We are thoughtful in the words that we say. That we are not a community that has our eyes this way only. But you are aware of the people in your neighborhood. And you, you are thoughtful in how you speak. You are thoughtful in how you live. Because your life might be the only gospel they ever see. The gospel is good news to everyone. It's not just good news to us. It's good news to everyone. It's good news. It is, it is the gift that our church gives to people in Malibu. It's not our church. It's that salvation is free and finished. 
It's joy, it's peace, and it's rest. I'm going to finish by just going back to this. Why do we exist? Why are we all even here? We are here to create a community that wants to live gospel-precise lives. Not legalism, not relativism. But then what, what are we to be doing in our days, with our lives? The things we just went there that are in your bulletin. Let's pray together. Father, we are truly thankful for what you're doing here in our lives. We pray that you would fill our lives with the Holy Spirit. We desire to be a, a church family that doesn't function on our own strength, our own abilities, but that we are in, in total dependence upon your Spirit to move us, to, to arrange the loves of our life, to give us compassion, to give us understanding, to create hearts of generosity, to create hearts of excessive grace. Father, we're, we're all going to make mistakes. We know that. We need grace from one another. We need compassion. Pray that your spirit would put that upon us. We love you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.